Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ding-a-ling-ling, city. The Media Project is a half hour of commentary and analysis. And on our better days, some insight into recent events in the news media. I am Rex Smith, who uh, will try to keep things cooking along here with our fellow panelists, Rosemary Armeo, Ira Fussfeld, and of course, Dr. Alan Shartok. You know, actually, this is a great opportunity since there are two of you in this room, Rosemary and Alan, who have had the experience of having been granted tenure by esteemed universities. Mm -hmm. You might want to comment upon the fact that finally, Nicole Hannah-Jones of the New York Times, previously, has been granted tenure by a nine to four vote of the University of North Carolina Board of Trustees. Usually something doesn't go to like the top board. So this of course was the controversy about the fact that she was a key player in the New York Times 1619 project, which has had a significant impact on how we feel about racism in American society. Let me correct you on one small thing. As you know, Rex, I don't like to correct you on anything and I rarely get that opportunity. Nevertheless, I did want to mention that almost every, I think all tenure decisions formally go to the Board of Trustees. Ah, so in I other see. words, in other words, the letter you get said the Board of Trustees yeah, says, that's says true. It, so that's the first thing. But you're quite correct that th- these are not places where battles are fought. Because if the president of the university recommends it, or if the college-wide tenure committee re- recommends it, uh, then it's always just rubber stamp. But in this case, a major contributor decided he didn't like her getting tenure, and that's where the fight began. Yeah, I have been reading the 1619 Project way overdue because it came out several years ago, and I've never read it. But in light of the hullabaloo that Republicans, conservatives, have raised about its teaching, I've decided to honor it by learning about it so I can talk about it more. And it's extraordinary. And even if you disagree with it, it set off a a debate that, as Rex said, has changed the way we look and talk about racism in America. Now, that alone alone should have been enough to get her tenure. That school is incredibly lucky. Forget the Pulitzer Prize. She was at the New York Times. She rose to the top of our field. How lucky you are to have a professor of that caliber. And they denied her tenure, I believe. Tenure is fraught with politics, and we all know that. We were just talking about it here in our own little mere cases. Here was a woman who was denied tenure in an example of exactly what she was writing about, institutional racism. It was such a stupid move by the university. The board could do little else but to overturn the lower recommendation and give her tenure. And that there are four votes against it makes me crazy. How could there have been any votes against that? But then again, you know, we have a Congress who votes against voter reform or investigating January 6th. So bad votes, bad manners, stupid thinking is in vogue. And the university fit right in with that. They did. Ira is a non-academic. Yeah, I'm just. I don't know the ins and outs of the case. I know about it in broad strokes, and it just frustrates me. As Rosemary just said, there's the politics of this getting in the way w- with what should have been an easy and important decision. Automatic. Yeah, you know, there are days when you wake up and you see stories like this, or the kind of stuff that's going on in Albany and in New York City, 
and you can't do anything but shake your head. There's nothing smart you can say about it. There's nothing clever you can say about it. You try, but we're just stuck in this period of political nonsense, and it's not unique in our history, but I'm hard-pressed to think it's never been worse than it is. Now, Ira, as I remember it, you as a distinguished editor and publisher then of the Kingston Freeman uh, you also had to do with the um, institution, New Paltz, where you were a board member. Isn't that yeah, right? I was a member of the College Council. I wanted to do it because I graduated from the college and I wanted to put something back, but I was hesitant to accept it because it was a political appointment. I was nominated by the Democratic chairman of Ulster County, and it has to be approved by the governor. And I just felt, even though there was nothing political per se once we got on the council in the way that we're just discussing with this other case, I was uncomfortable as a newspaper person being tinged with the political process. But there could have been. There I could mean, have been. That's. I mean, most of most of these boards of trustees never get these kinds of decisions. Right. The College Council largely was anonymous for a number of years, and then as the media show, I don't want to veer off, but there was a college president who approved of an event that particularly aggravated the right wing in the area area and broader once it got picked up in the New York Post and all of a sudden it became a political football and that was not what I signed up for. I wanted to put something back into the college not worrying about what the New York Post was going to say about a president who had proved a perfectly legitimate academic exercise. Well, this actually does underscore another media issue here, and that is the extent to which the media coverage, the feeding frenzy on the question about coverage of racism has provoked the University of North Carolina board to do this. You know, you can't imagine that this board would have withdrawn the tenure offer because, let's just bear in mind, the initial offer to... Uh, you certainly rang a bell with that one. Right. right. <laughs> Nicole Hannah-Jones did come with an offer of tenure. It was then sort of pulled back by the board. One can't imagine that it would have done that absent this hard right-wing media coverage and this media ecosystem that didn't exist, actually, until, frankly, Rupert Murdoch began to exercise his way in America, creating not only the New York Post, which New Paltz was the victim of, but, of course, Fox News. To me, the issue is bigger for the media. It's both the 1619 Project and the view it gives that America basically began as a slave interest. That's the that notion. Was the, that was the candidate's major contribution. Yeah, mm -hmm. and that is the notion that has so riled up Trump <laughs> and other conservatives. And the other one now is critical race theory, which is really, Rex, nothing more than all of the investigative reporting that has been done by American newspapers in the yes. last hundred years, redlining, discrimination, housing, systematic housing, exclusion, it, that is critical race theory. And now it's being presented by Elise Stefanik and other horrible people as made up, as anti-white propaganda. How does the media, which as I say, is the source of the academic theory, how do we fight back? We used to think, oh, if you only tell people the truth, they'll get it and they'll rise up and do the right thing. And increasingly, the more you tell them the truth, the more they dig into their own racist positions, wrong positions, and hold on to them. Yes, that, of course, though, is a human psychological characteristic. I mean, research about reinforcement bias uh, suggests that when you try to move people off their point of view by giving them more facts, it just digs them in further. Mm -hmm. What is different as part of the media ecosystem is that there is now reinforcement for stupidity, 
frankly, in the commentary by such ilk as, oh, you know, the guy on Fox with the bow tie. Uh, <laughs> who's, uh, oh, my gosh. <laughs> and to say nothing of a former president of the United States. Yes. I'm doing that. But I want to point out with what you've just said, how profound it was, Rick. 73 million people voted for him in the last election, despite all that we know about what he was saying and how incorrect it all was. Right. Right. Speaking of Tucker Carlson, by the way, I mean, I do think there's actually more to be said about this wonderful issue. But we have, after all, such a limited amount of time because Alan doesn't let this program go (laughs) to an hour. We ought to have an hour of program. No! That would be our producer, David Gustina, in the background. So to move on to this other topic. So Tucker Carlson, I think, is actually coming unbolted. Off the rails. Uh He really is. He claims that the National Security Agency, the NSA, is spying on him. He said to his millions of viewers, the Biden administration is spying on us. We have confirmed that. And what is intriguing, which is pointed out, of course, by CNN doing the reporting on this, is that Fox News then didn't follow up on this. You would think that if one of the stars was, in fact, being spied on by the NSA, that the reporting team would have been all over it, that the executives of Fox News would be demanding an investigation by Congress. Well, that's the second time that this has happened in recent weeks, because he also claimed that the FBI either invented or was part of the insurrection on January 6th. Same deal. Where were the Fox News people investigating these allegations? The only one who's saying it is Tucker Carlson. Yeah, but I want to point out again that America is pretty well divided and that half the electorate voted for a guy who lied all the time. So lying is nothing new. Well, I'm not going to deny that, but the question is, what can we do about it? I'm fumfering to come up with a different angle for the same story. What can you do with people like this? Well, you're a very good fumfer. Yeah, I'm a fumfer. <laughs> I get a Jackie Gleason, humna, humna, humna. But, but what we can do is have elections where people are educated and do something. Yeah, if education well, works, as, as Again, as as you try out. to educate them and they dig in. And uh, Tucker Carlson seems to be redefining what opinion is. Fox... Murdoch seemed to defend him on the grounds that, well, it's an opinion show. It's labeled an opinion show. He can say anything he wants. But opinion up to now has never been wild-ass theories that have no basis in reality. But we had a president who did the same thing all the time for four years. He just lied through his teeth. Well, and we have the results right now because of the big lie. The election was actually won by Donald Trump, he claims. That is actually just a perfect example of it. There is is no background for that at all. So we shouldn't be surprised, I guess when a major media outlet pursues the same course. I do think that anybody who draws a paycheck from Fox News should be ashamed. I do think that the journalism programs in American higher education ought to call this out and ought to say to its graduates, don't go to work for this organization. Don't give in to it. Don't be a party to this notion that this is legitimate journalism. There is none. Well, Mr. Gooley, Mr. Gooley, we'd like to pay you $125,000 out of college to come to work for Fox. Yeah, you tell them not to go to work for Fox. Yeah, there aren't enough jobs. I want to talk about Glenn Greenwald, who is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. He's responsible for the Snowden revelations coming to the public. He has now become similarly unhinged. I think Mm -hmm. he caught it from Tucker. And he's been saying, oh, no, we shouldn't discount this idea that the FBI infiltrated far-right groups and so uh, gave them the idea that you can invade the Capitol and then provoked it. 
he, he's saying, believe this, we should investigate it. The press, the left, us, the traditional press are gullible and we're believing yeah, anything I, the FBI says. I don't know what happened to Glenn Gould. Yeah, well, I he he, I, it's my impression he was considered a very responsible and talented journalist, Way straight talented. shooter. Yep. Now I believe he lives in Argentina or someplace no, where he's exiled. No, it's Brazil. Brazil. And he's been doing that since I thought he's in effect exiled himself because he wanted to avoid some well, sort of legal... he has a legal... boyfriend in Brazil. I well, thought it was just that. That sounds like a Broadway play. With it. <laughs> <laughs> but he's become very toxic. You rarely yeah. will see him interviewed anymore in on quote-unquote mainstream outlets. You know, maybe this is just part of one of the reasons that there was wisdom in the old editors, the old standards that journalists should be rather anonymous themselves, that the story ought to speak for themselves. And we have instead moved to a place in American journalism where personalities of the journalists become all important. And of course, part of that is just television. It's inevitable that that's Absolutely. the case. But, you know, we also, even those of us in print who have been running newsrooms, uh, guilty as charged, have encouraged this. When we redesigned the Times Union, I made the logos of the columnists bigger so that you would have a big picture of Chris Churchill standing there next to his column with his arms folded so that we could focus on that personality. I encouraged him to come onto the WAMC Airways because I thought that personality would help to sell, frankly. And you were right. Well, he's a good columnist, by the way. <laughs> but, he's a, but he's a columnist. What, yeah. if anything, do you do with reporters who are tweeting their opinions on a regular basis and thus, in my old-fashioned opinion, damaging their credibility and, by extension, their outlet's credibility? Very um, good question. That's a very tough thing because you we rely upon social media to sell a lot of our stories. I, maybe I shouldn't use the word sell, but maybe advisedly is correct. But a lot of the access to our stories comes because they're picked up on Facebook and Twitter and many other platforms. So we encourage journalists to be active on social media, to promote their stuff, and then uh, we are we don't know how to react when they have personal views. The Associated Press, we talked about this a few weeks ago, fired this young newsroom associate from the AP Bureau in Arizona because she had some tweets about Israel and Palestine, which, of course, she wasn't covering in Arizona, nevertheless fired her and got quite a pushback from their staff there. So a reporter of yours, when you were still the editor, writes a tweet that says the governor has been accused of sexual harassment, and I think this is an important story because I believe it. That's obviously an opinion. Is that something that you'd say to the reporter? It's okay until you say, I believe it. Or do you let that reporter say what he or she wants to say? I think you should discourage reporters from offering opinions. Yeah, I really the, do. The Washington Post had an interesting case after Kobe Bryant was killed, and a woman there, a reporter there, also didn't cover sports, wrote that. Well, he is a rapist, and this was in the midst of, you know, the godlike hymnals that were coming out about poor dead Kobe Bryant, and she was also reprimanded, and that was regarded as particularly onerous because it was fact that she was saying it wasn't an opinion. By the way, this is a problem that I can relate to, and I think many smaller newspaper editors can relate to pre-Twitter. Because if you had a reporter who was your city hall reporter, and then you gave that reporter an opportunity to either write a column or to do analysis, 
then you're doing, in effect, the same thing that Twitter is doing, which is you're compromising that reporter's objectivity. If the reporter writes the mayor is an idiot, how is he going to be able to go into the mayor's office and cover a next council meeting I, and ask the mayor a question? You know, it is true that newsrooms have tried to set up <clears throat> rules for how reporters use social media, and that's difficult to do because you can't imagine quite the circumstances. There was an interesting opinion piece written uh, this past week by uh, Bill Gruskin, who is an old-fashioned journalist. This guy was deputy managing editor of the Wall Street Journal, uh, became one of the faculty of Columbia Journalism School. And Gruskin is saying, we need to update the policies to reflect that this is important, that we need to have more social media interaction. Um, I'm, I'm really torn about this kind of thing, but I think that if you have a newsroom where the values are clear and the value is independence, then if you encourage people to offer their point of view but maintain their independence as journalists, I hope that that would be thoughtful that people would do that. Too late, Rex. Yeah. The genie's out of the bottle. There's no choice. Newspapers need to survive right now. We've discussed this on this program a thousand times, and they're going to do whatever they have to do in order to survive. Well, but let's use Twitter as the poster child. That could be Facebook or a social media platform. I believe that the newspaper can have its cake and eat it. The reporter can say, I have a story today about this. Take a look at it. And so it'll try to attract people who might not ordinarily buy the newspaper. It'll give it the attention that the tweet right. is supposed to give without giving the opinion. It's just an extension. It's a promotion. It's saying today on WAMC, tune in and hear Rex Smith at 9 o'clock. That's a lot different, though, than punishing someone who does express an opinion. And it's an infringement yeah. on journalists who are opinionated and are highly informed. They're the people you should want to hear opinions from. But this is not a new problem. Social media has exaggerated problem. it. But 20 years ago, I got fired because I defended a story I thought was fair and readers said, no, it wasn't. And I expressed an opinion in it. In Where my did defense. you express the opinion? And did you write a column? No. no. I wrote an email back oh, to the oh, person. A personal oh, note yeah, to personal someone. Note. I remember this incident. Yeah, Rosemary was, was a managing editor. Ago. and uh, A paper where the values were clearly defined, that we were going to be transparent and talk to our readers. We were going to apologize for mistakes and explain why we did things. So you get a letter saying, you know, your story is just horrible and biased. And I wrote back, no, no, I really And you isn't. were fired for that? Yeah, I was, oh, fired. I was forced to resign, Terrible. technically. <laughs> so I sympathize with the people expressing opinions. I don't think there's anything wrong with the journalist having an opinion so long as I know what it is. And I've seen great reporting done on religious institutions by people who are highly religious members of the church. I've seen anti-abortion enemies, people who are rapidly anti-abortion, do stories that present the pro-abortion point of view very well. As long as you're transparent about it, you can cover anything. You needed a good publisher with an editorial background. Yes, oh. I did. I didn't have that. Well, your publisher had an editorial publisher. background, but... Yeah, but not a good publisher. <laughs> now she's the head of a major journalism school. But right? I'm not oh. bitter. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Media Project. If you're just joining us from Northeast Public Radio, I'm Rex Smith. That is Rosemary Armeo with Ira Fussfeld and Alan Shartok. And if you want to have your views heard, send us some email, media at wamc.org. We need to pay some attention to one of the top stories that has been covered in recent days and weeks, and that is the weather people like to read about the weather and there has been a lot of it that is the intense heat that is gripping the country 88 percent of the american west is gripped by drought there is heat that we have felt it in the northeast even but it's been just astonishingly hot record-breaking heat in the west and the question is 
How is the media doing in covering the weather? One of the things that annoys me the most about cable is spectrum. And if you turn on television, they've got it arranged so that you always get them first. So in other words, as soon as you turn on the television, you get Channel 1, and Channel 1 is always going to be something about the weather. You cannot turn it on without hearing about the weather. Well, clearly people want to know about the weather, and clearly, as I have often said on this program, you give them what they want or what you think they want, and they get it. But I don't know how many times a day you can hear it. I think the complaint against the weather coverage is not that there's too much or too little of it, but that it isn't connected clearly enough and frequently enough with climate change, that Mm -hmm. a heat dome over Seattle Mm -hmm. is connected to global warming. By the way, we haven't done anything about that in Mm -hmm. four years. I would say it's a partisan point of view that critics of coverage want us to embrace, except that it's so important and it shouldn't be a partisan issue. It's become like public health now. If you're for mass, you're somehow anti-conservative. So if you're for connecting extreme weather with climate change and while we really ought to do something about that, then you're espousing a democratic or liberal or progressive point of view and that's bad. That's very intellectual and you're right, but that's not what they care about. They care about the fact that I know I have to go out for a run in the dark at 4.15 in the morning, and is it going to rain? But they don't need, need, I I don't think, I think we're selling ourselves short. We can't, and I don't think we have to, uh, at the top of the hour or when you turn on the TV, hear a weather report that says it's hot because there's climate change. But on the other hand, Mm. when you have uh, heat waves such as we've experienced, or in the winter when you have the other extreme the longer context stories that there are inevitably going to be about weather absolutely has to talk about climate change. So there's two different kinds of weather reporting. I mean, it's like giving a ball score. You can give the score of the game at the top of the hour with not explaining that the pitching was bad. You can do that later when you're into the middle of the newscast. You know, remember when we had uh, a war (laughs) during the Vietnam War, uh, remember how we had reports every day about what was going on, how the war was progressing, what was the death toll of this battle, and so on. We are really in a war for survival at this point with the climate. I do believe that we ought to have more aggressive and focused, continual coverage of the climate so that every day, every news outlet is giving us updates on what is going on and why this is happening. People don't want to know about it, Alan, I think, because they don't understand it. And that is a failure of journalism to really explain things. We need to be able to link this weather. And journalists, because we're not scientists, are reluctant to link extreme weather to climate. But that is, in fact, the case. And we need to be giving people continual, daily updates about what's going on and why. You know, you called on me by saying, Alan, need Schmid, I always say, we need to do this. They don't do it because they think the assessment is politically we need it. They do it because they poll and they know specifically that you want to know whether it's going to rain or whether it's going well, to be hot. Yeah, I appreciate that, Alan, but I don't think that's the whole story. If all we did was just because people want to do things, <laughs> why would we have gone into journalism in the first place? And why would we have the media project? Well, indeed. We're, I mean, we're, we care Even about these things. Hour. Yes, if we really cared, we'd make it an hour-long show. <laughs> but we but, don't, but look, Rex, <laughs> we don't cover some of the major news of our time. For example, you've just been named the head of the board of Pro- Albany Pro Music. <laughs> big, big and, and that's a big, that's a big story. <laughs> uh, 
and and we don't do enough of it. <laughs> You're very kind. We don't do enough of it. I, I tell you, that ought to be front page news. What do we do well? We've talked about how bad we are at covering institutional racism and the fights over that, not doing well on climate. Does the media do really good yeah, on we, any story? We do, we do very well beating up on ourselves. Yeah. At programs like this, yeah. this is extremely valuable. There are program. no programs like this, Ira. Okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll agree with that. But the, f well, the fact is, you don't see okay. on TV Disasters. or on, you don't hear on the radio a bunch of supermarket owners sitting around saying, you know, we didn't market the eggs that well this week. <laughs> now, those discussions may well be going on, but we're not covering them, and they're not covering them. They're not putting up signs in their windows saying, don't try the veal. But <laughs> <laughs> But we are very serious, and we believe very much in what it is we do, and we want to make it better. And I think one of the inadvertent problems with this kind of discussion is that it does highlight the negatives that we have and does not, uh, does journalism not eats talk. Journalism young. But we started this program by talking about something great, and that is the 1619 Project. Right. That is New York Times reporting that changed the conversation in America. I really think that absent the 1619 Project, we wouldn't have been talking two years ago about 500-year history of slavery in America. And this has really changed the conversation, which is why the trustees were so upset because it has spotlighted the role of race in everything that has happened in this country. It's really changed how I viewed American history. I mean, I think none of us were quite as aware of it until the Times did this extraordinary reporting. Same thing with reporting on the Tulsa massacre. I don't know that we would have reported as much about that, which occurred 100 years ago, if the stage hadn't been set for the 1619 Project and if there hadn't been such great subsequent reporting. So maybe 100 years from now, they're going to say, wow, what the media did such a great job on climate. Well, it could be. <laughs> After we're all burned or disasters. We do a good job. Our producer talked about that. The building collapse in Miami yeah. has gotten amazing coverage. But as soon as you get into any Thing that's about history or values or dangers in the future that should affect our policy now, we then get into political trouble. Well, uh, nobody was covering, of course, the co-op board in Miami. Now you hear this that. wonderful right. reporting on NPR, Brian Mann, doing investigative reporting on what was known then and what should have been known about the danger of that building. And if anybody had been reporting that, those lives might have been saved. Absolutely. That speaks to what we've spoken about a number of times, which is the lack or the lessening of coverage of routine small town kind of issues that had they been brought to light sooner, that could have affected change. You know, Ira, we were going to hold a story for you to talk about. A bunch of small papers down in the area where you were the daily editor uh, have consolidated, right? Ulster Publishing. <laughs> has yeah, consolidated uh, their titles. They still had separate weekly newspaper editions, but there was a similar second section, entertainment section. I must tell you, it's been off my radar since I retired, but there seems to be an online version of what they used to do, and the entertainment section seems to be out there, but they've largely gone away. But they weren't the only ones who did it. I mean, we, the papers that I was in charge of for a while, our company owned in Dutchess County and Columbia County, we did a lot of consolidation. It was the forward I would say long before Alden Capital, our our company was leading the league in expense cuts and, <laughs> and, and uh, consolidating and closing back offices, etc. Well, everybody's done it. You know, the Times Union was initially founded as the Albany Morning Times in 1856, and it wasn't until the beginning of the 20th century that the Union and the Times got together. Yeah, now, you, so you were affiliated with the Nick News at some point, too. And there was the Knickerbocker News yeah. that was owned by... I uh, there. Yep, yep, yep. A famous alumni. Famous there alumni. you are. I'm trying 
trying to think of a time. Even the Knickerbocker News back in the heyday did not cover condo boards. Yeah. I don't think right. that's, that's ever been covered. That's probably yeah. true. Well, I have an you, opinion about Alden Capital that we don't have enough time to talk about today. So we'll get to put that. it on hold. We will next time. That is all we have time no. for, in fact. Yeah, I'm sorry. We Alan. would have had time, but we don't have time. <laughs> <laughs> Alan Shartok, Ira Fussfeld, Rosemary Romeo, and I'm Rex Smith with gratitude to our producer, David Gustina. Thanks for joining us this week on The Media Project. Never has complained. Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go to working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now, publishers are such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press. <laughs> <laughs>